I'm curious on what the word intentional means for you. Oh, well, intentional for me is you pretty much wake up every day and know exactly uh, what your future path is in your plan and you're working towards it. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Alrighty, everybody, we are back with another Intentional Growth episode. This is your host, Ryan Tansom. I appreciate you tuning in. Just as a quick note before we jump into the podcast is that we do have the next Intentional Growth Bootcamp coming up. So if you're wondering about how valuations work, so understanding deal structures, multiples, normalized EBITDA, and how those impact your equity value, your net proceeds, and how to come up with that target equity valuation at a point in time and reverse engineer your plan, understanding the difference between ESOPs, private equity firms, and how they impact deal structures, and then when and how you can actually get your money and your role post-closing, plus all of the roadmap on how the financials can be the roadmap from where you are today, and then tying it to that valuation and your ultimate goal of choices, when and how you want to exit Go check it out. It's two days. It's in Orlando, Florida at Rollins College. We cap out at 25 entrepreneurs. We've got about 75% full right now. And if you want to get on the same page with your business partners or with your key executives or any investors, anybody that you need to understand what is the target valuation that you're marching towards and then how how are you going to make the decision between reinvesting and then taking the money out and making sure you have enough cash to fund the the valuation, it's a great opportunity to spend two days making sure that you are diving in with a lot of other people that are also asking the same questions with the same goals. So that leaves us to today's interview with Linda Rose, who is my guest. And Linda is an entrepreneur three times over. She had three different businesses that she started, grew, and sold, and then she now is an M&A sell-side advisor, and she has a book called Get Acquired for Millions, and Linda and I have a wonderful conversation. She's got a couple big big, uh, key takeaways, and she's going to be diving into the different types of business models that she had, because she had three companies that had different business models. They were valued wildly different, had different deal structures and different buyers. And she walks through her thought process around each of those t- each of those businesses, what she would have done differently. So she gets into the importance of understanding recurring revenue and sustainable revenue and cash flow and how those impacted uh, were impacted differently by the three different businesses. She talks about what it's like to view the business as a buyer and how she grew into that mindset while she was running these businesses. She talks about the power of overcoming her uh, self limitations and just entrepreneurs in general and how we can do that using our businesses. She also talks about the importance of forward thinking strategic financial management. So projecting your revenue and cash flow into the future because that's what buyers care about while you're running your business. So making sure that you uh, are constantly focused on creating future sustainable value. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Linda. She's got an interesting aspect, which I personally loved about her financial background because she was a CPA, then she became an entrepreneur. So she's got a unique way of thinking about the numbers, psychology as a business owner, as well as the operations and actually doing the work. So she's got a well-rounded perspective that I think gives us a lot of good gold nuggets as far as how we should be running our companies while we own them, the different decisions that we have 
as we get to ready to sell them and making sure that we fall in the category of being happy when it's all said and done. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I really hope you enjoy this interview with Linda. And just as a small note too, next week we're kicking off our multiple uh, episode mini series on ownership and part, or I'm sorry, ownership and leadership alignment. So we're going to be covering the perspective of getting partnerships aligned and the ownership aligned with the ownership goals. Then we're going to be talking about how to get the leadership and executives tied in inside of that ownership goal. So that way everybody can get unified, marching towards that target equity valuation. Incentives are aligned, timelines aligned, resources are aligned, and that eliminates conflict, stress, and anxiety and makes the whole thing a lot more fun. So stay tuned for that. But for this week, I will kick it off with Linda Rose. So thanks, everybody. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace, and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going. But we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Linda, how are you? I'm excited for this conversation. <laughs> I know. No, I know. You got two people from the IT space that had a technical issue, which is why we're trying for round two. So what, yeah. it's, it was so great that we both actually knew what we were doing, yet we still couldn't. We're like, all right, let's just chalk this up to a, a, a test run. So I'm very excited to have this conversation, Linda. Me too. Me too. And hopefully the um, IT gods and the internet gods <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the pipe that we're going through is going to 
work out for us this time. I, I, I trust I trust we have everything in our favor. And let's start with your story, Linda, because when uh, when I stumbled across, I think I don't, honestly now I'm trying to think. It was some someone posted something, and I think you were on John's podcast. Um, and right. I saw your background. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be fun because it's industry background. You got a lot of you, you said said some phrases in the interview with John. I was like, oh, this is gonna be fun. So why don't you give everybody kind of the high level overview of the journey, what you're doing and what you did. And then we're going to go back and we're just going to unpack kind of the different steps of the journey. Sure. So I, I will make this as exciting as possible, but um, I started out my career in public accounting. I have a master's degree in taxation. My sole goal in life when I graduated college was to become a tax partner of a major CPA firm, which at the time I got hired by Arthur Anderson. Short story, I met my husband there. You couldn't date, let alone get married back in those days. And tomorrow I am celebrating my 33rd wedding anniversary. So I ended up marrying the guy, leaving the company, which, you know, women shouldn't do that anymore, but I did. <laughs> and it, it actually turned out quite well. 33 years of marriage, I would say I so. I say so. so. Yeah, absolutely. Congrats. <laughs> Uh, thank you. And that just dropped me into technology because I realized that I kind of like to ski during tax season and you can't do that between January 1 and April 15. So I said, I kind of need to find another career and spouting code sections was not my idea of a good time because that's pretty much what you do when you become a partner of a major CPA firm. So I found myself in technology, really weird how I got into that. Fast forward, ended up starting three companies. I started the the ERP CRM consulting firm, which is an offshoot of accounting because that's what I am, an accountant at heart. I started a staffing firm in the financial area to help staff all the biotech companies that just came my way from all these VCs that were spinning off biotechs in San Diego at the time. And then my third company was a hosting company, which was an ASP back in 1999, 2000. We still called it ASP yeah. before Balmer deemed it the cloud, right? <laughs> so uh, so here I had three companies for good 10 years. I had two offices, two companies in one office, You know, one company that had the staffing firm separately. And um, I think it was 2008, 2009, I call those my character building years because I had been through two recessions prior to that, but that one really kicked me in the butt. I actually had to close my LA office. I'd bought mm. an LA office like four years earlier. So I had to close that. I shrunk my staff and I realized what was keeping the doors open was my ASP or my hosting or now my cloud infrastructure company. And I'm like, hmm. So I jettisoned the staffing company I, as soon as I could get my revenues back up in 2013, I sold the ERP CRM uh, consulting firm, which was actually doing well, but it was very dependent upon people. Mm -hmm. And so if the people weren't working, I wasn't billing. So I sold that to a national CPA firm. And then I was left with the hosting company, which I went heads down mm -hmm. for three and a half years, just focused on revenue. My mantra on my whiteboard was a deal a week. We're not accepting anything less. And um, we amassed another 150 clients before I sold it to a private equity firm. And I walked out the door 45 days later. Hmm. When I was going through that process of selling the last company, um, you know, I looked at numerous different buyers and I realized, oh my God, this is my last company. What am I going to do after this? Like, I'm going to be unemployed. <laughs> a lot of money. A lot of money in the bank, but unemployed. And so I realized um, I probably wasn't ready to retire yet. But what I did instead is I went on this long backpacking trip. It was like 500 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. It took me about 
eight weeks because I, you know, took my time and it was an amazing experience. Almost killed myself twice. That's a whole nother story. And coming out of the back end of that, well, so somewhere in the middle in a burnt out forest in the middle of Oregon. So I started in Crater Lake, Southern Oregon, ended up in the middle of Washington, up in the Cascades. Amazing trip. Bears, elk, uh, never ran across a cougar. I was hoping to do that. Lots of deer, lots of all the other wildlife, but the bears were kind of scary. But And that wasn't one of the, no, I'm, I'm so curious if there's the dot between the bears and you almost like uh, the, the, the death, near death experience. Yeah. We don't have to go. Yeah. No, actually the near death experience had nothing to do with animals. The near death experience had to do with crossing rivers mm. and being on the side of this mountain full of snow and ice and nothing between me and this oh, lake gosh. a thousand feet down and nothing to hang on to. And I was sliding down the mountain and it was not a good thing. And I, I had a very thinking about that right now. Oh my gosh. Deep crying moment at the time. But anyway, I came out of the back end of this hike and actually met an IT guy along the path. He was here from the Czech Republic and he was hiking the whole trail. I was only hiking 500 miles. He was hiking the whole 2,650 miles. Anyway, we were around the same age, hiked the same pace. And I'm like, Hey, let's, you know, let's hike together for a while. So we did. And I just unloaded on him all the things that I did wrong on selling my last company, how I left money on the table and how they came in and promised all this stuff. And then a day later they changed everything. And you know, like I was very angry, you know, uh, towards the end. Mm -hmm. and, and part of it was my own thing because I didn't know what I was going to do next. But anyway, coming out of the back end of this, I realized I needed to write a book and really discuss and talk about all the places I left money on the table and selling three companies. Cause who else, how many people are going to get three chances at getting this right? Mm -hmm. And even the third time I didn't get it completely right. I mean, I did a much better job the third time, but I didn't get it completely right. And so, um, I spent the next 18 months writing a book called get acquired for millions. And I love it. basically that landed me in my third unpredictable career. Cause I didn't plan anything besides being an accountant. Um, of being a sell-side mergers and acquisitions advisor. And so that's kind of what I do part-time now. I, I say I don't do it full-time because I like to ski in the winter, which I'm up here in my home in Oregon. And um, when I'm in Hawaii, because I have a home there, I like to kayak and surf. And then when I'm in San Diego, you do everything else. You bike, you go to the beach, you go swimming. Not a bad setup. <laughs> not a bad setup. So I still do this, you know, not full-time, but there are weeks where we've got a close going on and it feels pretty full time, but well, that's it, my it's life. your choice though, right? You're choosing to do yeah. that. So I'm excited yeah. because there's a lot of different angles that we could uh, view your journey from. And let's take it from just like the purpose of the book when you, you know, cause I'd say your why of what you're doing is the same reason that I, I am doing what I'm doing. Obviously we chose different paths of how to go solve that. Why? But like, when you think about yourself 20 years ago, Linda, and you're, you're like, Hey, I'm going to, if you were to go back and take this book, I mean, obviously you'd hand yourself the book, but like, what are some of the core concepts that if you would have, if you were to go back to yourself 20 years ago and say, Hey, if you thought like this, how would you have done something differently? Well, first of all, you know, I kind of heard early on that you were supposed to start a company with an exit in mind. You know, you, you hear that and I'm like, God, that doesn't sound very exciting. I don't want to do that. I mean, I don't even know what my exit is going to look like. I don't know how long I'm going to have this company. I don't want to just plan for 10 years, but I got to tell you, I look at some people that have their companies for 30 years and their revenue and what they take home is less than what some people's companies had for five years doing the same thing. And 
the, the difference has been focus, right? It's been focused on the right things versus just trying to grow a top line business and the bottom line net income, right? If you truly focus on the right things, the growth happens so much quicker. And I didn't understand that. I didn't know that. So it kind of took me 20 years to get there and, Agreed. and that's okay. It's a process, right? Um, and a lot of people go through that process, but you know, if my son were to follow my footsteps, which, which he's not, you know, that would be my advice. I'm like, look, focus on what the end goal should look like and you will get there so much quicker. So let's, let's unpack what, what would you tell yourself what, or your son, what the, or anybody listening in, obviously like, what is that end goal? Like unpack, what does that mean? Cause obviously <laughs> the definition of intention, you're working towards something. So like, what, 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 are the, what are you solving for and how would that have changed your focus and the things that you were focused on? Yeah. So I'm going to say a little bit was ego driven for me and I don't think I'm the only one and that being a girl, I can still have an ego, but you know, I wanted to have an empire along the West coast. I want to start out with my San Diego office and then have an LA office and then have a San Francisco office and then have a Seattle office and, you know, just dominate the West coast in what we did. Right. And it was really about top line growth and just adding people and, you know, bigger is not always better. And and that was something I realized when I sold my last company, which was half the size of my second company. And I got six times more for it. It was really more about building a recurring revenue stream. It was more about getting the cloud and the servers to work for you and not the people, because guess what? People want to go on vacation. They want to take some time off. They get sick. Your customers um, are not always there available to handle your people that are coming out on site to do billable work. So, you know, again, early on, someone says you don't get rich billing by the hour. So true, right? So get something else to bill for you by the hour, you know, get something where you're making money while you sleep. I mean, those were not the things that I thought about when I first started my business. And now it's all about that. Even today, when I'm doing what I do today, it's like, okay, well, what can I create out there that can be making money for me while I'm sleeping? Uh, agreed, Linda. And uh, I think that was well said. And that's from the, you know, you're, you're kind of getting to the cash flow, the sustainable, predictable, na- transferable nature of that cash flow obviously has a direct correlation yeah. to the value that that company will be worth. So, what I'm interested to hear of like along your journey, so I always see through these, through conversations with entrepreneurs, Linda, or people on the show, it's like there's a point in their journey where they're like, ding, 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 this is an asset. And if I focus on de-risking the cash flow, then I can actually grow this asset. Where along your journey did you have that inflection or point or that transition of your mindset? Or was it maybe natural or how did, how did that happen? No, I probably was 10 years into it. Maybe not quite 10. Maybe it was maybe five to seven. You know, I think a lot of us as technical people or people that are deep into their trade, they get into it because they love what they do, whether you're a developer, whether you're an IT person, whether you're an accountant like I was, right? You um, focus on your trade and you're really good at it. And you don't step back and look at the bigger picture of really running the business and not working in it, but working on it. And I, I do recall, remember having the conversation with my husband and I said, you know what? I've like seven people now. This is not a hobby anymore. This is not about just putting food on the, on the table, which is how it started. I was, you know, I just had a baby and I didn't want to go back to work full time. And, you know, we live in Southern California. We bought our first home. We had no furniture. We didn't have a washer and dryer. You know, it's like, I had this little 
brand new newborn, you know, and we rated our 401k plan to put the down payment on our house. That's like the only thing we owned in some old cars. And so it was all about putting food on the table, but not thinking about building a business. And I, I think there's so many people um, in so many industries that start their business that way. It's just a need to, because they got to put food on the table. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh my God, I've got 50 clients and I've got 10 people working for me. Shit, this is not a hobby anymore. This is a business. Totally. And I think it was three years into it that I finally incorporated because I was a sole proprietor for the longest time. And then I'm like, I probably should incorporate now for legal reasons. And then once you make that mind shift, then it's like, okay, now we're in it for real. Right. 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 Well, let's, I love, I love, thank you for the clarity. Cause I want to keep that going. Cause I, I think a lot of people will get to that point where it's like, Hey, now I got stuff. There's things and there's people, there's an infrastructure and I need to be paying attention but people then generally, generally go to the income statement and they're constantly looking at the revenue, maybe the yes. net income, you know, it's revenue, gross profit. What's in the bank account is usually what I joke around about. So I, and there, then there's this another transition where I see where people go, hey, normalize EBITDA is the thing. And oh, no, that's way down the road. Right. They don't think about that until they get ready to sell. No, that's years down the road. Well, and, that, <laughs> and, and I think the challenge with that is then people don't realize that they're spending money. It's an investment and it could be a normalized, a normalized event. And, there, and the reason I'm asking this question, particularly to you, Linda, like this is you were a, a CPA and a lot of entrepreneurs think, well, my CPA knows how all this stuff works. You're shaking your head for the people oh. listening. So why don't you explain? And some some do. So we don't. I don't want to like generalize here, but like some some of them do. But like from your experience coming from that that trade and then being an entrepreneur, how does like a CPA look at the numbers compared to now you as a broker helping people sell companies and also banging through companies as an asset? What's the difference that you would? How would you describe that? I don't look at the numbers as a seller anymore. I look at the numbers as a buyer, and that's a huge mind shift. And you're like, well, wait a second, don't they look at the same thing? And they don't, right? A buyer looks at, you know, how well you've done at in the past as uh, really an indication of how well you might do in the future. So we all are just so excited about how much we've grown in the last three years. What we're not focused on is sustainability of the future, because just because we did this the last three years doesn't mean we're going to replicate it. And so what you have to show the buyer is, well, how are you going to replicate? Where is the sustainability? Where are your single points of failure? You know, do you have one? It's great that you landed the big fish and that customer now represents 20% of your business. It's horrible that that customer represents 20% of your business. Cause what if they leave? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it, it becomes about, you know, uh, making sure that your customer base is diverse. It's comes, it's about how long your customers have been with you. How much more can you sell to these existing customers? Can we get them on a reoccurring basis? How, how, what's the churn on your people? Cause we know there's a lot of costs associated with training new people, right? So keeping the churn down on your people and on your customers and making sure whatever it is that you're selling to your customers is a package solution that they pay for on a, on a monthly basis. And you can tie them up for at least a year. That is what buyers look mm -hmm. at. And, and, and they also look at your um, cost to acquire a customer, you know, your CAC. So, you know, you got to bring that down, right? So, 
it's not at all what we look at as sellers. As sellers, we look at, oh, my top line grew 20%. My bottom line grew 20%. And, you know, my gross profit margin, they look at gross profit margin to buyers, but my gross profit margin is going to, and those are all good things, but that doesn't address the sustainability of the company, right? The people who were sustainable made it through COVID. Not everybody did. Mm-hmm. Even the even some people in IT did not do well through COVID. Yep. They did not have their people locked up in contracts. They did not, you know, have certain things in place so that, you know, yeah. the shit hits yeah. the fan. Yeah, right. Money well, I mean, in the door. Well, and especially, I mean, my God, the last three years, what we've all known is that the, the norm is there is no norm. It's like the, the, the ground's shaking regardless of what, what, what uh, place you're standing at. So compare that buyer lens to what, the practice of a CPA is and the reason I'm just trying to unpack this is because it's, I think it's so helpful you know, for people. We are not forward thinking people. Okay. CPAs look at the past. We don't look at the forward. We're not taught in, in college to look at, at the future. Yes. We help with projections and things like that, but that was the biggest thing I have to say coming out of college and starting my own business. I had some really good mentors all of them were men, by the way, because there was no really good women mentors out there at the time. And the guys, the guys, because they were all construction guys, because that's where I started. <laughs> the guys taught me to think outside the box. And the box that I was taught to think within was gap and accounting and tax rules. That's the box that I was taught about. Think outside the box, be creative. How are we going to keep our customers? How are we going to market more creatively? My goal always, I'm, I mean, truly in the 26 years that I had my company, I probably had to reinvent myself three times because you never want to be commoditized. And even today, you know, MSPs are pretty hot, but I got to tell you, it's a race to the bottom oh, in terms yeah. of, you know, how much you're going to charge per, per user per month, right? You can't be doing it on, on, on users anymore or devices. You got to find another metric that goes beyond the people count, right? Mm-hmm. Or you've got to add other things in there that will bring you margin beyond just selling Microsoft 365 licenses mm-hmm. on Azure mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's super helpful. Indeed. And like, I also like there, I think it's because when I was thinking or when I was listening to your uh, other interviews and your finance background is intriguing. And then you combine that with entrepreneurship and also your desire for like the intangibles is and like reconciling all those is fascinating to me. And so like the way I've described it, and maybe you can kind of speak to this where like, when you think about a CPA, their jobs are moving the numbers in the boxes so you can minimize your taxes, right? I mean, if that's what they're doing for the taxes, and then if they're doing a quality of earnings, it's just making sure the numbers are right. But like when I say like, as an entrepreneur, like if you and I were sitting here in in beginning of April, and we're growing like would name whatever kind of company and we hit the throttle down for sales, what is our cash position going to be in November, along with our prepaid taxes and our distri- uh, d- distributions and our working capital. That's a whole different game. Cause you're talking about like the num, like the cash flow, not the income statement, yeah, and the- you're cash flow, but you're also talking a realistic set of projections. And I'm always amazed. And it doesn't matter what size company I'm working with. One of the very first things I ask for is, okay, give me your projections for the year. And they're like, uh, the what? The projections, you know, you're a $16 million company. Do you not have a set of projections for the year? Well, not really. <laughs> I know. It's um, not, uh, I'm guilty in the past and oh, like, and everybody, I did. So, it's so common. You know, cause you go like, well, who's going to look at that? 
And the reality is you need to be looking at that, right? It, it's like, and that even as an, as an accountant, I mean, I, I didn't do projections early on. I probably didn't do projections until we hit a certain dollar amount, whatever that was anymore. But then I did it religiously. And I was meticulous about where the revenue was coming from and what we needed to do and what do we need to plan from a marketing standpoint to get the right looks, Mm -hmm. to get the right, you know, opportunities and leads to close the number of deals, right? It was, it started from marketing because, you know, now marketing is the new sales, right? Mm -hmm. I I think you spend more money on your marketing than you do sales because people self-serve on the marketing side before they ever call you up on the phone. And frankly, if they could buy what you sell, online and never speak to a person that's the perfect world uh, i will i will i will generally agree with you the only thing is that like so many people have automated stuff so this is all subject depending this probably won't time uh time well um or yeah that's sort of marinate well over time but it, as long as the communication on that marketing is interactive where now it's i just want to talk to someone because i'm so sick of not being able to talk to someone but i Sure. Agree, but generally agree with you, and, and I don't want to uh, sideline the point. Is yeah, you're thinking about those projections, and one of the things that we suggest a lot, and I, I'm really curious to hear how you would uh, think about this, given your three different companies that you've grown and sold, and then also the ones that you're advising on, is that we always recommend no, like every month go through the normalization of the one-time expenses. So you're building the story while you grow the business in your monthly ordeal or your monthly package. And then when you're projecting out, if people project, like we all kind of take that <laughs> coming to truth, but then you can project out the the one-time expenses because then you're looking at the true number. So many times people are like, I didn't do that well. And they look at the net income. Like, that tells me nothing. It tells me shit. Like there's so much noise in that. So normalization I caught in your interview was as one of your, your, yeah, yeah, it's important. There's money there to be found, but again, the normalization doesn't come into play until you're getting ready to sell. Right. And then I will you push back because well, what happens if you want to monitor the value of the company while you owned it? Uh, well, that, I'm assuming when I say sell, it doesn't mean an outright hundred percent. You may want to just sell a well, you majority yeah, share. But yeah, agree. But like, and I didn't mean to be uh, confrontational, just more of like the, the, Hey, if you're measuring it, cause you, then you can see where you're at, but you're right. You don't have yeah. to do it. It's not like mandatory by anybody. No, and you know, some people are, are really good about keeping a clean set of books and not running all their personal life through the company. And then others aren't right. And so if you can go back and make sure that you see what that looks like. Uh, that's helpful. Now, you know, I do see people that say, well, and I've got a case right now where it's like, well, you know, I've been paying myself $75,000 a year and now I want to get $200,000 a year because I'm selling the company. I'm like, well, you, you understand <laughs> that's going to be a negative adjustment, not a positive one. Not saying that you need to live on $75,000 a year, but do you, you know, do you really need to go up? Well, it was two fifty, And I actually had a guy last year. It was like, I, I really need 500,000 a year because I take distributions. I'm like, you really want to do that? You need to sell I mean, for enough, I, right? In order to maintain that. Exactly. Right. It's like, you know, the differential between what your salary is and what your salary was could be millions of dollars by the time you had multiples against it. Right. right. So, you know, there's a whole exercise just around that, which we won't but, belabor but, that but, issue but, but I think uh, the reason I did bring the story up is because when I was listening to that interview you did with John, you had your own personal experience. I had the same thing where like you got, I got, we got burned. Right. And so I don't know. I think there was, I don't remember if it was when you were talking about one of the brokers and I don't know if it was which one of the sales it was. Yeah, it was my broker. Um, 
he was not, um, he was an M&A advisor and there's a difference between an investment banker and an M&A advisor. The difference for those people that don't know is investment banker has to go, they're FINRA authorized for the SEC. So you have to take the series seven exam, the series 69 exam, series, whatever exams, there's like multiple exams you have to take. And then you have to maintain that certification going forward, just like you would as a CPA we're, whereas an M&A advisor doesn't need to do all that, but we basically kind of do the same work. But technically, you know, there's certain things we can't do as an M&A advisor because we're not FINRA authorized. So we have to be very careful on stock transactions. You know, there's kind of a, a fine line here in terms of what we can and can't do. Well, my broker hid behind that. And he's like, well, you know, I can't really help you with the oh. normalizations. And I can't really help you create the SIM. I'm like, seriously, I got to do this myself. I mean, seriously, tell me this, right? And so even though I'm an accountant, you know, I don't, I didn't do that for a living. I didn't know where to look for all the EBITDA adjustments um, or normalization adjustments. So I absolutely left money on the table and I was pissed about it afterwards when I realized it. Right. So, you know, there are good M&A advisors and they're not so good M&A advisors, right? And um, what separates the wheat from the chaff, I think, is those people that really know how to go after normalizations and those that say, oh, you know, just give me your EBITDA and we'll add back a couple of things here and call it a day. So then you're leaving money Yeah, it's so true. And I, that's why I wanted you to tell that story because it's just, we could tell that story every single episode and it, it, it just is that important. I mean, like I said, there's two numbers figure out half of the equation. <laughs> so, yeah. And you know, I, I mean, not to belabor this issue, but there are also brokers out there that like, Oh, we have this marketplace and we sell, you know, so many deals a year and you want to be part of this. And I'm like, no, you don't, you're not going to get the love and attention that you need. I mean, you're not going to have somebody there to call at two o'clock in the morning when you're thinking through X, Y, and Z and talk to on the weekend. And, you know, you, you, this is actually one time where you don't want to go with some large firm that runs, you know, 30 deals through the system every year. You don't because you're not going to get the love and attention that you need. Yeah, you, you might. Well, you might not get the love and attention that you need or you do from the D team, <laughs> which either one is not good, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the very junior juniors. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So let's talk about the, you know, you had three transactions. What what was your what was the difference of the three different businesses in your experience selling them, how they were valued, the process kind of just you got some different yeah. unique comparing contrast. They were three very different transactions. So the first one I sold was my staffing firm, which I ended up selling to my partner. I mean, she was the most viable person to sell to. I, I did go on the outside, look at what valuations were, and I said, you know, this is kind of what I want for the company. And you know, and it, then it was a question of just terms. Um, she decided that she would just do a hundred percent cash. So it was a hundred percent cash because I had some clawbacks that I proposed. If it wasn't a hundred percent cash, if she kind of tanked the business, then I wanted it back or, yeah, you know, right. I had some things like, that. you know what, I'll just pay you all the cash and we'll be done with it. I right, cool. That's good. The second, did you feel like it was um, fair? Did you feel like the like this? Absolutely. Even yeah, what, even knowing what you know now, you feel like everything was fair. Yeah, yeah, I do. I thought it was fair. Um, she probably thought she overpaid, but I <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> they have reached the honesty. Yeah. Our, <laughs> oh, <I hear>. awesome. <laughs> we're, we're still friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're still friends. Um, the second company definitely left money on the table. No question about it. But 
And I knew it at the time. And I did that deal myself. I sold to a national CPA firm, but there it was different for me to, to, for me, I almost just wanted to get rid of the company because it wasn't the most profitable company I had. The, the one I had left, which was the cloud infrastructure was the most profitable. And this other company, frankly, was in my way. Mm of me focusing on this company over here that was really going to make me a ton of money down the road. So the focus for me on the second company was finding a good home for my people uh, where they could grow. I had my partner in that company had been with me for 18 years and I, I needed to find a good home for her. Uh, And all the other people that were on that side of the fence that had been with me for 12 plus years, I owed it to them to find them a good place where they could grow and progress their careers. So that was my ultimate goal. How did you make that decision? Linda? like, who did you, who did you Um, look at other people? How, and maybe I, I did. And, and because we ran a lot like a CPA firm, I knew that a CPA firm was probably going to be our best choice because with the same philosophies and goal structures and bonus structures. Mm. And this firm was very much about the people had the great benefits. You know, I took my people on reward trips around the world. They didn't quite do that, but they had similar types of things as well. And honestly, my partner of 18 years is still at that CPA firm. And I sold that company 10 years ago now. Wow. Cool. So, yeah. And people have retired from that company that worked for me. And that, that feels good, right? Yep. That feels good in my bones. And that, so the culture was like number one for me, the, the money was two. Um, but you know, did you have, I had a, did you have another, uh, offer or potential buyer that you could contrast that to? Yes, but not serious, okay. not super serious. Right. And I felt like these guys were so much stronger from a longevity standpoint and just from a, opportunity standpoint. And plus I had a great relationship with their lead salesperson. So we then shared customers. That was the other thing too, is like part of my people that were my customers for Rose ASP were also customers of Rose business solutions. And so, yes, I was selling them on this side, but I was still hosting them on this side. So I had to have a really good working relationship with the companies I was selling it to. And I just felt like Mm -hmm. that was going to happen. Yeah. 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 completely different reasons mm-hmm. on why I sold to these people. And I know I left money on the table and I was okay with it at the end of the day, because again, it was an opportunity cost to allow me to work on this one over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that had the 98% recurring revenue and the 96% customer retention rate. And, you know, before we go to the, the before we go to the crown jewel, I want to unpack, want to unpack the, the, the second sale for a little bit more. So, when you say that you left money on the table, what do you mean by that? Is it is it more that you like didn't do the normalizations correctly, or is it because you could have sold it for a premium to someone I else? Sold for probably a higher multiple to someone else. Probably, yeah, it, yeah, which is it's super helpful, Linda. Because what I always try, like, and I always help. I'm always trying to help people think through this. Is like because there's a couple ways to identify the right outcome. And, and like what I've realized, because this is what I didn't do, was we didn't know what we wanted, so we didn't know how to pick, right? So it was it was our fault. And then there are certain, yes. and there are other people where I've, I've, you know, through the interviews that I've had, Linda, where it's like they had five offers so they could compare and contrast deal structures, devaluation to what are they going to do with the company, but their options were an accident, actually. 
You know what I mean? Like it was like, oh, I didn't really know what I wanted, but look at the differences. So I want that one. So, but it was still wasn't like thought through of like which one they were going to go get it. Kind of the contrast happened. And you probably deal with this at, with your current line of work where like when someone's like, I got an out of the blue offer, it's going to be perfect. But it's like, how do you know without, without relativity? You don't, right? Unless you go and check with other people. And I did what a lot of people do, which is they get an unsolicited offer, which is kind of what happened here. Actually, it was over tequila shots at a conference. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Bar, right? It's kind of one of those, hey, you think you might want to sell? Hmm, I might entertain one more. that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And by the time the night was over, like, yeah, we'll get you an offer next week. <laughs> Just, that's awesome. It didn't quite go that way, but it was close. Right. And so, um, and you know, I had my eyes on these guys. I knew who they were. So it's not like it was out of the blue and they were one of the high up on my list kind of people that I would want to sell to. So I was thrilled that they were interested in, in my company as well. And I just knew enough about them to know that this would be an excellent home for my people. Right. And so I kind of, I call it anchoring. I anchored on these people. Right. And so I kind of had blinders on for anything else that came my way. Well, how do they compare to these guys? Not well. And, you know, I have clients right now that I'm representing who have anchored on one buyer. And I'm like, you know what? You don't know if this is a good offer unless you get another one. And you can anchor all day long on these guys, but you also can't work the the deal if you don't have a competing offer. Mm -hmm. And I wish somebody had said that to me. I didn't have an advisor at the time, right? But I wish somebody had said that to me and said, Linda, at least get another offer so you can compare. Mm -hmm. What I did is I went to a friend and said, this is what they're offering me. Do you think this is enough? And he's like, no. (laughs) He's like, I think you should try for more. And so I did. And guess what? I got it. You know, I mean, they came in with a ridiculous offer and I was, I was almost, what's the right word? Insultant? Insulted Uh, or... Insulted. Yes. Thank you. But then they had another partner who was a girl and I, and she was up for partner. She wasn't partner at the time. And she's like, don't worry about that. Just go back with what you think the number should be. We always do that. We always <laughs> send an insulting offer and see how it, it lands, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, because I'm insulted, you know, I'm really insulted here. And so I did, I went back and said, that's not going to work for me. I need this. And then they're like, okay. And I'm like, wait a second, that was too fast. So you know, and I was negotiating this offer as I'm driving up to Orange County for some other conference. And then I get there and I'm having a couple of drinks at the bar. I get a lot of clarity at the bar. <laughs> I love <Amazing>. it. <laughs> and, and then I'm like driving home. I'm like, no, I don't want that offer either. So I called them back up. I'm like, no, I don't think we're done negotiating yet. Now they're pissed. <laughs> but, you know, it all ended up well. But, you know, you're again, your point, though. It's, it's having those, other, yeah, even like, like, that's why I think it's helpful. You're even doing that for your clients because how I've worded it, Linda, is like, it is if you, because everybody has that list of the top five, regardless of the industry, everybody knows that there's a, like a competitor or some of the complimentary product or service. So like everybody's got their short list, but what I've, there was a guy on my podcast uh, years ago and I've taken this to heart and I've coached our clients on this, Linda, and it works where it's like, Hey, get that top five list, build relationships over the years. So that when you don't mm-hmm. need to sell, and then when you're ready to take it to market, if the third party options, your desired approach, then you go, Hey, Linda, I love you and your company. We've been building this great relationship. I'm going to take the company to market in three to six months. I really want you to win. Would you like to participate in the auction? <laughs> and he told me that story. Yeah. I was like, that's badass. And he was explaining how like you still are then getting your highest multiple and you're trying, you're like playing the good cop by betting on them 
instead of like trying to be, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty fascinating story. It, it is a good way to go about it, but most of us don't. Most of us, you know, play our cards close to our chests and get insulted if you come in with something, you know, ridiculous, whatever. But lessons learned. And so let's move to the, the, gold, the golden child then of the, 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 the third business. So in that scenario, I knew I was going to pick an advisor because I could see who my potential suitors were, like those top five, and none of them appealed to me. And none of them had the money because I, in the back of my mind, wanted a chunk of change. Okay. I knew, I kind of knew what my EBITDA Mm -hmm. um, multiple should be. And I'm like, I like a chunk of this in cash. And I don't see that none, I don't see that any of you guys have that on your balance sheet. So I went out to, and I, I, got picked this guy and, um, he did bring me a number of buyers. A lot of them just weren't good fits for whatever, because I don't really think they understood my business. I mean, that's the other thing too, when you go out mm. and you decide who your M and A advisor is. Um, and actually it was kind of funny because one of somebody I sold last year was an MSSP and he first interview phone interview. Okay. Tell me the difference between an MSP and an MSSP. And I'm like, sure. No problem. You know, I went after it, but he's like, I can't tell you how many brokers couldn't tell you what the extra S was in MSSP. You know, I was in the industry so, and I don't know what, what is it now? Now I'm curious. Security. Security. <laughs> of course. Duh. And by the way, you can tell I've been out of the industry for nine years because <laughs> I wasn't there. But you know, it's important because your, your advisor is positioning your company and your unique value proposition in and I got to tell you, most sellers don't even know their unique value proposition until I tell them what it is. I'm like, yeah, you think your unique value proposition is that you've been around for 25 years and you're this status, gold status in this vendor community. And, and you've got, um, these guys have been on staff for 12 years and blah, blah, blah. And that makes you unique. Do you know, everybody says that? <laughs> That is not unique. <laughs> I got news for you. Look at everybody's websites. They're all saying that. Let's core talk values, about what's integrity, really Linda. Value. Yes, of course. Core values, integrity, right? <laughs> That's not what makes you unique. And usually I have to dig into a company, understand it. And then I come up usually with what their unique value proposition is. And it may just be about, you know, uh, the diversity in the customer base or, um, you know, the year over year growth that they are able to achieve out of X, Y, and Z, it, it may not have nothing to do with how long their people have been around. Nothing. Well, it's so right? fascinating that you say that because, well, if you pull on earlier in the conversation, you said that you about 10 years into your journey started viewing your company from a buyer's perspective or now that's what you're doing now. And so like the buyer has a specific thing that they're looking for. And unless you've ever right. been a buyer of a business, you don't really probably know. And, and it's not, the picture of grandpa up in the lobby. It's very nice, juicy cash flow that's got a sustainable, right. pre- predictable future. And it's just fa- right. fascinating being able to like have that conversation. So my broker did, you know, had a number of buyers out there that I was presented to, and I did have a number of offers. I didn't take the highest offer because the highest offer required two years of an earnout. And I could tell that there was no way I was going to work for this guy for two years. And I also knew enough about myself to know that once you 
owned a company for 25 years. It takes a certain individual, and that was not me, to go work for somebody else. So no, no I submitting said, PTO requests for you? No. Uh, <laughs> so I, um, I would probably be just too opinionated in, in what color I wanted the house to be painted, right? <laughs> and so anyway, I, I took the lower offer, which was 100% cash, and the, of course the accountant to me said, okay, the differential, it was like a $2 million difference, I think. And I figured, you know what? I could make that money up in the market and invest wisely and be in the same place and I'd be fine. And that's exactly what happened. Well, and I'm, so. I'm curious too, cause that earnout would have probably, were you tied to your job staying there? So you would have, yeah. So yeah. obviously oh, if you would have oh, had to report yeah, to them. Yeah, so then your job, not only make it up in the market, but like whatever, earning income potential that you were to do along with that, right? Remember, I was planning on being retired. I had no plans of earning additional money. It would have been completely different if I, it would have been easier, even easier decision if I planned on working again, but I had planned on not working. And so it really was a question of, can I take this money and invest it over two years and make the same amount of money. So you make makes sense. Thanks for the clarification. So then you were saying that you wanted the big chunk of money. So financial reward was the what sounds like it was one of the top filters in space. so yeah. compared to the last one you just talked about which was the people so like right. how, like how were you let's, how, let's concerned about the people because here's why um this was a newer staff so they hadn't been with me as long but the but i had t- two core people had been with me for they had they had started with rose business solutions had moved over to rose asp one guy was my like my the guy that kept the lights on the data center, he's the guy I could call on at two o'clock in the morning. If I saw something was going down, of course he saw it before I did, but I had to make sure that he was well taken care of. And my admin assistant who had been with me for 18 years, I absolutely wanted to make sure she was well taken care of. And then there were two other people as well. We only had a staff of 15, mm-hmm. believe it or not, but we were, you know, I like my metrics came to a point where I was looking at revenue per person. And if we weren't doing like between four and 600,000 revenue per person, we're doing something wrong. Whereas before we were doing like 250 in the, in the, in the consulting group, we were doing about 250 per person. Uh, uh-uh, that was not good enough. We had to do between four and 600,000 revenue per person. Unless I could see my way to, we wouldn't add another person unless we could see our way to another 400,000 in revenue. So it was a completely different mindset there. Beautiful um, mindset, by the way. I love it. (laughs) Uh, So there, it wasn't so much about the culture for me. It was more about if these people wanted to leave, I gave them enough money that they could go anywhere and do anything. Take a year off, take two years off, find another job. They could easily be employed somewhere else. So it wasn't the culture thing for me. It was more about what's going to end up in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Will these people, you know, have opportunities now? Mind you, they nixed my entire marketing department within three months, and my son was part of that. <laughs> he was in the marketing department. He was ixnade, but that's not a surprise. But anyway, um, you know, nobody has like did today. Know did he know that was a surprise, though? I'm just curious. I think on your guys' conversations around that. Uh, well, he didn't care to work for them, so he was okay to. Did you not know that? Or did, were you guys having conversations about the sale prior? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was I was always very open with my son. That's always been kind of an important thing with okay, me. So he's my only son, and I try to teach him everything along the way. So yeah, yeah, I even probably showed him all the offers and said, and he's like, "Damn, mom, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome." <laughs> you go, girl. Um, so the uh, you, you sold three wildly different 
businesses. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts yeah. about the types of businesses and how they're valued and how entrepreneurs should think about the type of business that they're in? Because like the reason I'm asking this question, Linda, is that people, you know, you, you, you mentioned multiple times about viewing the company as a buyer. And I like to say to people, if you're keeping your business, you're indirectly just buying your business over and over again, right? Because you're choosing to stay yeah. in that business. So think about what business you're in, why you're in it, why you're doing it. So think about the three types of businesses that you're in, how they were valued. What, what are your thoughts on it? Well, it, it's a very simple answer. It, you know, the staffing firm was completely 100% people driven. The hosting firm was 20% at most people driven. And the consulting firm was like 50-50, right? And the value went up as it was less reliant on people, more reliant on infrastructure. So infrastructure doesn't stop working. It's a 724 thing. People stop working after five o'clock at night or six o'clock at night, right? They don't bill anymore. Mm -hmm. So it, it really became a function of producing revenue that is not dependent upon people and producing revenue that you can count on year after year. And if you focus just on those two things, uh, you know, I, when I get up at conferences, I said, look, say you have a $5 million business. Okay. This is a pretty common number that people mm-hmm. strive for. I can compare two $5 million businesses, or let's just not even do that. Let's just look at your $5 million business. If all you do next year is not even generate one more dollar, but take what you had in reoccurring this year and increase it to next year, even though your revenue has not in- increased by $1, the company, the value of the company has increased because now it is recurring revenue that a buyer can count on. Top line, bottom line, absolutely stays the same. You just focused on that one metric and the company became more valuable. And I tell people that and it's like deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. And they're like, really? Yes. Well, really. it, it's uh, and another way to even put an exclamation point behind that point is on our old industry, and it, this has been almost a decade now. So it's, uh, I think the, the, the kind of rules of thumb of the valuations are different, but it used to be one times or like one point, whatever times maintenance revenue in the copier industry. So, <clears throat> you know, in that it, and it's ebbed and flowed. I mean, and all those are just proxies for someone to kind of think about what EBITDA would be there. Right. So it's not, I mean, they're trying to get the cash flow, but they would say, okay, well, one times revenue and maintenance, but on, let's say it's 20 million in revenue, you're doing, it's two thirds, one third. So you've got a third of the business that's equipment selling, but you're doing that every single month. And they're not even yeah. grabbing that as part of the rule of thumb because to your point, so they're, they're looking at the maintenance revenue, right? So I totally agree with you. I mean, it's because you don't want to have to start over every single day. I mean, in like your 250 versus 450 revenue per employees, there you go. There's your proof, right? Yeah. So absolutely. when, when you think about the, your hike after you sold, so, you know, because this, what, each, it sounds, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, but you go. Can I, tell you, can I tell you the biggest epiphany in that? Yeah, hike? no, that's a, I'd love, love it. Yeah. Biggest epiphany on that hike. And we, you know, we talk about it more as women, but men have the same problem. And that is our glass ceiling. Like, and you know, I don't want to get into the whole male, female thing, but we talk about it more as women of having this glass ceiling in the corporate world. Well, I didn't have a glass ceiling because I was my own corporate world. I didn't <laughs> right. answer to anybody. It was me. Okay. And what, what I realized on the hike is, um, I was my own glass ceiling. Okay. Uh, and how I realized this was, 
in those couple episodes where I'm on the side of the mountain holding on for dear life. And it was a question of life or death, right? It really was. And I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, I was up in Goat Rocks up in the middle of the Cascades in Washington. And I was on this snow-packed uh, mountainside that it's August. There should be no snow there. But all of a sudden, the snow shows up out of nowhere. I have no crampons. All I have is my hiking poles and, you know, my normal hiking boots. Right. And it's shale underneath the snow. So I see that some people have gone before me and have post hold through this. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to follow the tracks and post hold through what they've done already. Cause I know that they've stepped here and I don't have to worry about slipping as much because I have the leverage of the hold to help me in the place. So I'm heading down. Um, cause I know which direction the, 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 the path is, but what happens is they, they kind of went down mountain and they were supposed to go up mountain a little bit. And then they realized, and the people who are this, I don't see them anymore. They're way beyond me. They realized that they had gone too far down mountain and then they now had to go straight up. And I'm sitting there going, and it was only maybe five yards. It wasn't a huge amount, but I had to go straight up five yards. Now I'm in deep shit because I've got nothing to hold on to. It's icy snow. It's shale that just unloads underneath you. And I take a couple steps and the whole earth just starts unloading underneath me. And I've now gone down five more feet. And I seriously, there is nothing between me and this pristine blue lake a thousand feet legit, down I, like i i'm so i'm so terrified of heights actually now with my old like as i've gotten older i actually kind of want to throw yeah, throw them in my mouth as i'm listening to this because it's so real <laughs> but seriously there's not a branch there's not a root there's nothing now remind mind you i have a 30 pound back a uh, backpack on my back because you know i don't think there was water for another like 10 miles or something. And it was the heat of the summer. So you, you know, when you get water, you carry like three liters of water on you and each liter is like 1.1 pounds or something, you know, I mean, you add it up, it's like six extra pounds of water and my food and stuff like that. Cause you know, I'm out days on end before I get mm-hmm. into town and, and resupply. So I'm losing ground. So I dig in my poles and there is nobody around me. I'm, I'm, I'm hiking this by myself. And I'm, I basically just start bawling. I I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, what the F are you doing here? Linda Rose? Why have you put yourself in this position? Like, what were you thinking? And it's like, you're going to die here. You are just going to die or you're going to live. Which one is it? Take your pick. Like I'm having this conversation with me while tears are streaming down my face because seriously one wrong move and I am done done. There's no question. I'm done. Like, and I'm thinking like typical California thinking no one's let, no one made me sign a release to hike this hike. Like where's the liability release to hike this section of the hike? Are these people in Washington crazy? Like who sends people on this part of this hike? Right. Which any other normal day when there was no, so is probably would have been a, just a great trail right there. (laughs) There was snow and it wasn't a great day. And thankfully the wind wasn't blowing because then I really would have teetered off of this thing. But, you know, I dug in hard and deep and, you know, took my poles and just buried them in the ground and crawled my way up to the side of this mountain until I got on back up on the trail again. And, you know, the adrenaline is going through the roof. The heart rate's going through the roof. The blood pressure's going through the roof. And there it stayed because I had to do what was called the knife's edge. And the knife's edge is exactly what it sounds like. A very thin piece of, of rocky 
trail and it drops off on this side and it drops off on this side and you want to take a picture because the the, the, the view is spectacular, but you don't dare reach around in your backpack to get your phone because A, you might drop it, and B, you've, you'll then lose your balance and you could go either direction and you just hope the wind isn't blowing at this point, right? And it's only one one person, one direction. Like if somebody's coming the other way, they got to stop and do something or whatever, but it is just like you're going. And it it took me a good, seemed like hours, but it was probably only 45 minutes to get off this part of the knife's edge. And once I got to a piece of ground and I sat down and can just compose myself, because I still had another 10 miles to go, you know, you don't realize at the time, but when you get home from that adventure, all of a sudden, all the shit that you didn't think you could rise above is like nothing, it's like, seriously, that was holding me back? Oh, my God, what was I thinking? Right. Boom. You just blow right through it. All the obstacles you thought you had to take the next step of your life are just become, this becomes such small things. It's seriously, like, yeah. I made so many inroads. Like, I just, like, my mindset just, totally just went beyond. Well, I think, I mean, the, the amount, uh, the... The amount of correlations of that story to entrepreneurship, the metaphor is so ridiculous. I we probably don't even have time. I mean, we're not gonna do it. we're not gonna unpack that. But like, I mean, following <laughs> someone else's footsteps and all of a sudden they disappear and now you're on your own. Why am I doing this? Fine. I mean, like, and it's one thing after another. It's just like I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you are Oh, I'm, oh, oh right. I was sitting there the whole time going like that's entrepreneurship. Like you think you got it, then you don't, then the earth starts moving, then you finally get there, and then there's something else, and you're just like whack, 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 whack. Yeah. And you know, where I thought, you know, if it's small things like I remember thinking, okay, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is a great salary. And I, I just said this to somebody recently, and and I thought that was a big number. And then I'm like, well, you know. Like, I don't get out. Then I used to say after I retired, I'm like, well, I don't get out of bed for half a million. And I'm like, well, wait a second. That that's number's not big enough either. I'm like, now I don't get out of bed for at least I can see a million dollars a year. Like, if I can't make a million dollars a year, I'm, I'm not going to work. <laughs> Just not, that's, and I'm not saying top line revenue. I'm like in my pocket. Right, right, okay. Right. After all, <laughs> we're not taking, oh, we're down to making a million dollars a year. No, this isn't Linda's bank account after taxes. You know? not, not like the freight brokers so, saying they're a billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, that doesn't matter anymore. So, you know, it's all down to your mindset again. And now I'm, I'm not saying go put your life in jeopardy and expand your mindset that way. But I tell you, it's what it did it for me. And I had, and my other second little trip was I was crossing a river and it was uh, rather deep and rather vicious and it probably wasn't the right day to cross it. And um, I lost some, some balance there. And Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, and I think in, in one of the thoughts as we're as we're getting close to the wrap up here is like i've always i've been asking now people like do do you think do you think you would have the perspective that you do you think it's possible to view business the way that you do without the journey you've gone through mm-hmm. yeah like you just yeah it's totally have a different like people ask me if you were to do it all over again what would you do differently i'm like oh do you got a day because <laughs> it's so long i mean I, but would you take that away now, from yourself, though? Uh, what do you mean? Would you take that experience away from yourself? So if you would have, if you go back in time and save yourself from, oh no, I would go through it all again. No, 
Yeah. Huge learning experience. I just wish I was a lot younger when I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. It's like the energy is a factor, right? Like yeah, the energy is a factor yeah. into it. Linda, this has yeah. been so fun. I'd say the, the one last question that I have is like, you know, you, you alluded to it a couple of times that you were planning on retiring, but you did not. And I, and obviously you're, you're helping people right now sell companies in uh, the IT space, but why did you choose to find something and maybe speak a little bit to the role identity infusion that business owners have with their companies and what like retirement's like with that identity. You probably talk to your clients a lot about it these days. Yeah. I don't know what your journey is like. Yeah. How do how do you, how do you, how did you process that as you were going into, you know, obviously you had these life threatening issues. But. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's something that a lot of people go through and it's almost what prevented me from signing on the bottom line, even when selling the last company, because it's like, well, what am I going to do? My whole identity. And I'm not, I'm not the only person, anybody that's run a business for 25, 30 years, especially if your name is on the outside or you're a hundred percent owner, your entire identity is wrapped up in that business. Your friends probably are associated with the business, you know, Going to conference is a big social event for you. It's, it's You view it more than just work. It's a social event for you because you get to see people that you've known for years and have cocktails with them after the sessions and stuff like that. I mean, and when you sell your business, that all goes away. And you realize that and you go, oh my God, my entire identity goes away. What am I going to do with myself? Because I haven't spent the time building the relationships. I didn't anyway. Mm-hmm. Spend the time building the relationships outside of my work. And so I had none. And so it's like, Oh, what am I going to do? Right. And that was very scary for me. And it's very scary for other people. I know people who have retired and they're like lost, you know, they're just lost. They don't really know what it is that they're going to do. And they knew it when they sold their business and they still haven't figured out. Some people have moved on to other things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I just, I mentioned, I, I just finished writing my course and I have an entire module on the mental the mental aspect of selling your business and how you mentally, the mental readiness that you need to be ready for, I guess, to, to, to cross the bridge over to the other side and what you need to do now to prepare for that. Otherwise it is a huge shocker. Oh, it's, right. It's so, true. And so, so true. Right. So partially why I'm doing this now is because um, it gives me something to do. I'm not completely ready to retire. I get to, I'm really passionate about what I who I work with. I mean, I work with small companies as well as large people say, well, why don't you just work with large companies and just do a couple of year? Well, I still like the small guys too, because I can help them so much. And I'm, I'm so passionate about it. I mean, I wouldn't have spent 18 months writing a 300 page book. If I wasn't passionate about it. that's a huge undertaking. Like getting that book out the door was huge people, unless you've written a book and understand what it takes to put out a really good book and four rounds of edits and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's like, it's truly like birthing a child. Like they say it's like birthing a child. I can't, really can, I can't relate to that. I was about to say I can relate to the book yeah. thing, but. <laughs> so, you know, the book's a passion book for me and every single person that reaches back to me that has read it and can pick something good out of it. If it's just a small nugget, I just love hearing that because I know I've made a difference on their bottom line. Yeah, and that's that. awesome. And potentially in that, I don't have a different way of saying uh, for your mental, the, the six inches between your ears, you know, on the, the, if you got chapters about that too, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge undertaking. Linda, this has been so much fun. Um, I've got two final questions for you. Uh, the last one or the first one is the word intentional. I asked people what it is because the name of the show and I love hearing people's different versions of what the word means. So I'm curious on what the word intentional means for you. 
Oh, well, intentional for me is you pretty much wake up every day and know exactly uh, what your future path is in your plan and you're working towards it that I'm very intentional every day when I get up. I love no that. Question about yeah. It. It's gotta be a million bucks. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> I love it. So if people want to find you, your book, communicate with you, reach out to you, what's the best place to find you? Best place is my website, rosebiz.com. And, um, the book is right up there at the top of the banner. And then if you're interested in the course, that's going to come out, uh, probably, in May, June timeframe, just uh, hit the wait list. So it's rosebiz.com forward slash wait list. And um, you can read a little bit more about what's going to be involved in that course. So I'm pretty excited about that. And Rose, this has been a blast. I appreciate you coming on so much. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. I'm glad we were finally <laughs> able to make it happen. The internet gods are in our favor today. <laughs> Thanks, Rose. You were. Look, we're still online. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Linda. I just really enjoy her perspective from the three different types of companies, like the business model, how that impacted what she wanted to do with the business from her legacy play, but also how that impacted valuations. And so fascinating on how clear cut it was and how to leverage and scale based on the revenue per employee based on the different types of business models. So I interviewed uh, Daniel Marcos, who is the CEO, I believe he's the CEO of uh, the Scaling Up Institute that's in partnership with Vern. And he was talking about how important that revenue per employee metric is. And when you start to see the different business models and how fast you can scale up with different business models, I think is a telltale sign. I'm like, hey, that's going to impact the valuation too of what the potential of this future cash flows are. Again, that kind of goes right into her whole theme of view the company from the eyes of a buyer. If you're keeping your business, you're choosing to keep your capital in that asset. I know obviously there might be some income implications why you need to keep that because it's also tied to your job, but that is why it's so damn important to figure out what is the target equity valuation that you want and then how do you back into the salary distributions that you want on the way there because you're going to see if you have a funding gap to get to that valuation and if you can't see that, then you're flying blind and you're going to randomly hit your line of credit, randomly run out of cash or randomly have to get an investor or you could tie everything together with a point A, point B and say, okay, now I'm going to choose to run this like a buyer, even though you're choosing to keep it because you're just an investor in your own business. So anyways, I loved how she uh, brought all that stuff to the surface. If you want to know more about this kind of stuff, like valuations, deal structures, how companies are, uh, how the deal structures apply to the different exits, go check out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp. We're 75% full. I, I highly recommend it. If you have a partner or if you have any executive that you want to get on the same page with and have a, a focused two days to hammer out what do you guys want or gals want from the business, this is going to be a great opportunity to do so, and it's uh, shaking out to be an awesome group. If you have any questions or concerns or hesitations, do not be afraid to reach out to me. Happy to chat with you about it. This is our ninth boot camp, and we've had five hundred and some people go through this. So it's worth the time and I can't give you your time back, but uh, obviously we stand by our, our, uh, our offering. So if you have any issues with that, we've never offered the, we've never given the money back, but we're happy to have that conversation. So thanks everybody for tuning in and make sure you stick with us for the next mini series launching next week about ownership and partner, I'm sorry, ownership and leadership alignment underneath that overall, uh, excuse me, underneath the overarching goal of getting that target equity valuation and the income, understanding how to align ownership and leadership teams inside of that framework. So thanks everybody. And I'll see you next week.